It is Dave Plyer in for Bob Surratt. It's Bob's record collection today. And today we're going to feature my interview this year with music icon Smokey Robinson. And then she said, just because you become a young man now, it's still some things that you don't understand now. Before you ask some girl for a hand now, keep your freedom for as long as you can now. My mama told me, you better shop around. Smokey, how are you, my friend? I'm good, David. How are you? I am great. You know, you never stop. You just put out another new album. Yes, I did, man. It's <laughs> awesome. It's been a while, but I but I have a new one out now, Gasms. Um, uh, uh, yeah, I felt I thought it was time, you know. And I've been I actually been working on it for about four or five years, though, you know. But uh, you know, that's the way it is in the record business nowadays. You know, sometimes it takes. Longer than that for a person to make a new album, but I hadn't done one a new album of original material in a long time, so I figured it was time, and, and um, it's called Gasms. No, I've heard it, I've heard it, and I think many of your songs were for were perfect for behind closed doors, but this album was done with intention. I, it was <laughs> absolutely <laughs> with, with with the thought of having some controversy. <laughs> oh, hey, controversy is good publicity, my friend. <laughs> you know, uh-huh. <laughs> um, yes, indeed. I want to go back a bit. Where did the name Smokey come from? Gosh, David, I've had that name since I was about three or four years old. Man, my I had an uncle. His name's Uncle Claude, and um, and uh, he was also my godfather. And when I was three or four years old, he would take me to the movies to see cowboy movies because I, I thought that at that point mm-hmm. I wanted to be a cowboy because mm-hmm. I loved cowboys and, and especially the ones who sang, you know, like Gene Archie and Roy Rogers and those guys who sang. And so he would take me to see it. So he had a cowboy name for me, which was Smokey Joe. <laughs> and if you ask me love what that. my name was at that time, I told you Smokey Joe. I love and it. everybody all my life has called me that, with exception when I got to be about 12 or so, they dropped the Joe off and I just became Smokey. <laughs> But but that's been my name all my life, man. Even my teachers. You know, who were the people that were influencing you back in the day? I've heard Sarah Vaughn. I've heard Jackie Wilson. But, like, who did you want to emulate? What influenced you well, in your Well, you know what, David? Uh, um, Sarah Vaughn is the first voice I ever remember hearing in my house uh, when I was probably about two or three years old. I, I, that's the first voice I ever remember hearing. But, uh, I, you know, I, I had uh, two older sisters, man. And between my two sisters and my mom, they played all kinds of music every day, man. I grew up in a home where there was always, which was really great for me. And I heard everything from uh, blues to gospel to jazz to classical, you know. Um, and and so I grew up hearing those voices. When I got to be old enough to want to buy my own records and stuff like that, about you know, eleven, twelve years old, Jackie Wilson. Yeah. was my number one singing idol. He was number one to me. Then there was Sam Cooke and Ray Charles and Frankie Lyman sure. and a guy named Nolan Strong. We had a group called the Diablos in Detroit. And they were my, my, my singing idols, man. I, I, I just loved them. And so I guess in, 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 you know, by me having a high voice, and they all had high voices, uh, I, I tried to emulate them uh, as, as much as I could at that time, you know. But they were the ones who influenced me the most. I know you mentioned Detroit, and you know what was it about that time in Detroit in music that defined a musical genre? You talk about Aretha Franklin, Diana Ross, Marvin Gaye too. You knew Aretha and Diana when you were just little kids, right? 
Yeah, I haven't known Aretha since uh, shit. Uh, I was eight years old, and I've known Diana since I was probably about twelve. Wow. You know, we all lived in the same neighborhood, and um, and uh, but you asked me what the what the thing about Detroit was, man. Barry Gordy was the thing about Detroit. Yeah. We had Barry Gordy. Yeah. We had a man who had a dream, and his dream made so many other dreams come true because he was a man who had the fortitude and all that, especially back in those days, to be a black man starting a record company and competing with all the ones that were existing at that point. You know, it was a, it was a real feat, man. But uh, he was he, he was he's just that kind of guy, and uh, he was the 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 uh, the, uh, the catalyst, and he was at the helm. And we had a guy like him who was a music man. His first love was writing songs and, and producing records, and rather than him being some other kind of businessman who just decided he wanted to go into the record business and and, and see what that was like, or an attorney or something like that, he was a music man. So we had him at the helm, and that was the, our greatest asset. I say at that time too. I know you and Barry are like brothers after all these years, but. You were a prolific writer. I mean, you came to Barry with a book of over a hundred songs you wrote right in the beginning. Yes, I did. Mm-hmm. And, and, and only two of them did he like. <laughs> <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I used to be a rambler when it comes to songwriting, David. I used to be a rambler. I mean, you know, and since I was a little boy, I mean, a little boy, four and five years old, I was yeah. writing poems and stuff. I could, I could, I could always rhyme stuff. But when it came to writing songs, you know, when I met Barry that day that I met him, uh, um, he, he pointed this out to me eventually after he had heard about 20 of my songs, you know. That's <laughs> he awesome. Said, because my songs were all rhymed up very good, man, but the, but the, the continuity of them was off. Because my first verse would be saying, oh, my darling, I love you so much, and I'm so glad that we're here together, and we've been together for all this time, and don't ever leave, and it'd be all rhymed up, you know. Then the second verse would be saying, oh, baby, when are you coming back? I haven't seen you in 10 years, and I miss you so much, and I want to be with you, you know, so that had nothing to do with yeah, the first verse. Yeah, yeah. So, so anyway, but he, he, he started to mentor me on my songwriting. And um, and uh, make me understand that a song is a is a short book or a short movie or something that has a beginning. This thing was a beginning and a middle and an ending that tie in together. So um, you know. Well, you know what's funny too is that I know Motown was a training ground. Like Barry saw this label as a training ground. It didn't matter if you had records out before you joined a label or his label. If you were had you were in concert, you were on stage, you were on the radio. Didn't matter. He had a clear mission when he signed someone. And and really, it was a training ground. Oh, it was a training ground, man. We were the only company in the world, and uh, before then and since then, that had artist development, which was a school for our artists. And it was mandatory that you went. You didn't have a choice whether when you signed with Motown, it was mandatory that you went to artist development, especially if you had a record out, mm-hmm. because we wanted our acts to be ready for the public when they saw them. You know, I knew in the in the earliest days of Motown, especially in the South, audience would be segregated. But the music of Motown back then to today and your solo music and your music over the last 50 years really brings people together. It does. Well, you know, David, that's one of the things that I'm really proudest of, man, the fact that we broke down barriers with music, you know, and uh, that, that I'm, I'm so proud of that because, you know, in the early days when we first started, when we were fledgling and we weren't in any cities but Detroit and Ann Arbor and Flint, Michigan, and this was before we were, we were even a national 
company. Um, there were places in Detroit that if you went there and if you were a black person, you better have something on you that said you worked for somebody in that area or you were supposed to be there for some reason, you know, and especially if the police caught you, you know, you, you, you in those areas, you, you just in the area and, you know, you would get stopped and, it, it, you know, it was ridiculous, really. It was, it was so segregated. And um, we started to get letters from the kids, from the white kids in those areas. And they said, hey, man, we love your music, and we got your music. Our parents don't know that we have it, because if they knew, they might make us throw it away. But we got your music. We love your music. We didn't think to save those letters. Right. That's, that's, oh, those letters man. would be invaluable now, Absolutely. man. They would be priceless. Agreed. You know what I mean? But we were young, and we were just doing what we were doing, and we put them aside and don't even know what happened to them, you know. And a year or so later, we were getting letters from the parents in those, in, in, in those areas. Hey, we found out our kids had your music, so we wanted to see what it was about. We listened to it. We loved your music too we had to keep on making it that, that, that kind of stuff and we did not think to save those letters man because we were just moving so fast and we were young like i said and we were happy to get them but we didn't think to save them and they would be invaluable nowadays but here's what you still have you still have a lot of these people in your lives because everyone in motown was like a family and and still a family for those who are still around uh, for everybody who's still alive we still have a our motown family man yes we do the great Smokey Robinson, and one of his more contemporary hits on Bob's record collection here was 1987's Just to See Her, number one on the adult contemporary charts. Just to see her Just to touch her Just to hold her in my arms again One more time All right, the great Smokey Robinson. All right, my favorite conversations of the year we're going to play all week. Coming up is the great Henry Winkler. Hold it, hold it. Come here. Come here. I'm going to do something for you, Cunningham, I never did for anybody before. I'm going to teach you the secret of being tough. Wow, you don't think I could ever... Hey, who told you to talk? I'm sorry, Fonz. That's the secret. What? I think I missed it. You see how nervous you just got? Yeah, but I thought you were gonna kill me. Hey, that's the point, I intimidated you. That's because I've got a majestic bearing, I got style, I got an attitude, I got a tough voice. Let's face it, you're a good fighter. Hey, I'm the best. But in the entire time you've known me, have you ever seen me in a fight? Well, no, but that's always because the other guy backs down first. I rest my case. Do you think that could work for me? Cunningham, with that howdy-doody face, you can only be so tough. legend henry winkler 
From Emmy Award-winning actor, author, comedian, producer, and director Henry Winkler comes a deeply thoughtful memoir of the lifelong effects of stardom and the struggle to become whole. Henry launched into prominence as the Fonz and the beloved Happy Days has transcended that role that made him who he is. Brilliant, funny, and widely regarded as the nicest man in Hollywood. It's true, though he would be the first to tell you that it's simply not the case and that he's just grateful to be here. The new book is called Being Henry, where he shares the disheartening truth of his childhood, the difficulties of a life with severe dyslexia, the pressures of a role that takes on a life of his own, and the path forward once your wildest dream seems behind you. Henry has endeared himself to a new generation with roles such as adored shows as Arrested Development, Parks and Recreation, and Barry. And to talk about it all live in the studio is my friend, Henry Winkler. I cannot tell you how great it is to see you in person again. Nice to see you. It's so nice to see you, and I can't... We just flew in from Boston, got off the plane, had Eggs Benedict... I'm now here at the microphone. Here we are. Here we are. And happy birthday to you. Another year around the sun for you. Truly. Yeah. I'm very close to (laughs) now. And uh, you can see I'm very comfortable with it. I I saw you talk to Colbert. He asked what year this was. He said it was 2023, which was brilliant, by the way. Keep that. Keep that low. Um, And did did Stacey make you a chocolate bun cake? Uh, no, okay. um, uh, that is made by a friend of ours, oh, nice. Ricardo. Uh, he makes a great bun cake. Stacy usually gets me. There is a bakery in the valley mm-hmm. uh, on Reseda Boulevard, off of Reseda Boulevard, called Bee's Bakery in L.A. <clears throat> One of the best bakeries. Oh, that's great. And uh, I have black and white cookies from there. Oh, nice. Okay. They're great. Okay, black and white cookies. And she usually has a cake made of a gigantic black and white cookie. And that that. is my cake. That is lovely. That is your chocolate guy. For sure, right? I'm a chocolate guy, but I'm really enjoying the vanilla side. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Thus the black and white. Um, We were talking on the ride over here. Like for most people, when they write a book like this, you did it in nine months. It's like 10 years of therapy looking back at every facet of your life. And you said, no, it wasn't. No, it it was not. You know, it was a, um, I felt the pressure of writing an, a book that would entertain and maybe interest. I wrote it with a, a, a wonderful man. Now, I've written 39 children's novels yes, with Lynn Oliver. Mm-hmm. So I knew how to work with a partner. And so I met James Kaplan. Uh, and I didn't know that I had to fly him out to L.A., put him up twice, (laughs) and feed him three times a day. Wow. And I want to just say the man is a eater. (laughs) He's a big eater. Uh, There's got to be a dessert. Okay. Oh, all right. Okay. And we talked for, I say, 70 hours. Wow. Wow. And then he just took copious notes. Right. And then he recorded. He did. Okay. And then I, uh, he molded my stories, and I then uh, deconstructed them. There was, uh, there were facts, or there was a joke, or there were people left out, and so then I just, then he would read back to me what he wrote, and then eventually there is a book, and it's now out. It's written very clearly in your voice, though. Yeah. And that's what I was telling you. Like, you know, you, you tell stories. Important. 
you find connections, you go back to stories. It's it's almost like having a conversation with you. Thank you. Yeah. yeah that's how I felt. Thanks. I think I would have to hit her. <laughs> no, you're not going to hit my wife. Oh, yeah? Why well, don't I hit you? Well, you can't hit my dad. All right, I'll hit you. <laughs> you can't hit my son. Well, I got to hit somebody. You know where Patsy is? <laughs> with Henry Winkler in studio. His new book is Being Henry. Happy Days turns 50. Yes. Coming up. Um, American Graffiti, Greece, kind of rocketed to fame. First season, you guys made it to number 16, dropped to the top 30. Um, it was iffy. Whether it was not it was only gonna... iffy, we were almost canceled. Yeah. And Gary Marshall had the brilliant idea to go in front of a live audience. Ron Howard had never done that before. He had been in movies or on television since he was three. He's now 18. Or single cameras. Never had done a play. Yeah. I'm telling you, I, I saw wonderfulness. This young man did it in front of a live audience. You would never know he was scared. And it was like a, a duck to water. Well, and they were screaming. The audience was screaming just with your presence walking up to stage or any and a lot of the other characters, too. But yeah. you for sure. Well, um, uh, the, the Fonz was very popular. It was really great. It was a, a wonderful moment in time. You had a windbreaker. That Not, went away. You can't be cool. You can't be cool. <laughs> yeah. uh, Gary Marshall went to ABC and said, you know, if he rides a motorcycle, he could be hyped. Yeah, Gary. You know, uh, they <laughs> said if when he's with his bike. Yeah. He can wear leather. Yeah. And you were a gang all unto yourself. And that's what he was trying to establish there. Right. You didn't need other characters to do no. it. You were a gang all of yourself. Um, cultural phenomenon. You were uh, right off the bat. Uh, you know, uh, went from a supporting player to one of the stars. The success and that visibility came quickly. I assume it was overwhelming. You know, it wasn't overwhelming. It was mostly fun. And the reason it wasn't overwhelming is because, I, for me anyway, there was an emotional component to dyslexia. I believed that I was less than because everybody said I was stupid. So when people would talk to me about how wonderful the character is, how wonderful they thought I was, they couldn't possibly be talking to me. So I just heard the words, and it went through me like a screen door. This I found interesting, too. You said your parents visited the set, and um, you said it almost seemed like they were finally proud of me. But the truth is, I didn't care. It was too late. They weren't proud for me. They were proud of me. Well, they were proud because it enhanced who they were. You know, all of a sudden, they were the co-producers of Henry Winkler. Right. You know, I, I needed them to be the co-producers of Henry Winkler when everything was completely yeah. kablooey. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't need them to be proud of me when I figured out how to be successful. No, and they're your parents. And that kind of messes with your head a little bit. Yeah, it does. It does. It it does. does. Yeah. Um, but the joy you came out with with that show and the people that 
you worked with and met, Ron and, and Mary. Well, they're Morris. all still friends. I just they saw are. Don Most. Yeah. He now lives in Boulder, uh, Colorado. And uh, our children's book, our 39th children's book, yeah. came out like um, 16 days ago. Yeah. Uh, Detective Duck. Yeah. And I was on tour for the Duck. Yeah. And Donnie and his uh, wife, Morgan, uh, live there in Colorado. Yeah. And I got to see them. Yeah. Uh, and it was great. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, it was wonderful. A lifelong friendship. Yeah, lifelong friendships, yes. But during the time that you were doing it, there were struggles, right? I mean, you know, you talked about in the book, uh, which so many great stories in this book, and we're just touching a few of them here. You got a video cassette recorder in 76. Nobody had a video cassette recorder. Right, and three-quarter. Yeah. Three-quarter, remember. Yeah. So these are the very biggest tapes. Massive. These are professional tapes. Heavy. I got it for Christmas. From ABC. And other people in the cast got a wallet. Yeah. And I didn't realize that it was not all equal. Yeah. So when I was asked what I got, and they stacked it up against, it, it was, oh, we are not as respected, then it really hurt a lot of people's Horrible feelings. Horrible feeling. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 But I mean, they wanted to, they wanted to call... Uh, they wanted to change the name of Happy Days, and I said, "Look, if you're, if I, if I have anything to say, if you're going to listen to me at all, it would be so damaging. I, I live because of this family. I am successful because I am in the midst of these incredible people. If you change it to Fonzie's Happy Days, years after we have been on the air, and it's been." happy days it would be such a smack in the face i i don't think i could live with myself best friends each other's godparents i mean yes the, the close relationships yes but you later say that abc's rudeness turned ron into a billion dollar director well because he left it he finally yeah. said you know what i don't i don't feel as if i have to come back and he always wanted to be a director yeah he talked to me over the years about do you think i can do this and i i i, I you knowing ron you know there is nothing he can't do yeah. except he did tell me that he did open a drawer in his house and there was a mouse and he just closed the drawer <laughs> and walked away as if nothing had happened and he let somebody else will take care yeah, of that. Somebody's got that. Somebody's yeah. got that. I can I can move a, a, a team of a hundred people making a movie. Yeah. I'm just going to leave the mouse where it is. <laughs> That's great. That's great. But I'll tell you, Gary Marshall kept everyone's head straight. Yes. By playing softball. It was a thing. It humbled you. It humbled everybody a little bit. Well, I didn't play right. sports. Yeah. I have no eye-hand coordination. Right. I have a Labradoodle uh, named Sadie who has mouth-eye coordination like I have never seen in my life. <laughs> she must have been on a soccer team in, previous years, life. in, in a previous yeah. life. But she is a better athlete than I have ever been. And that is the great Henry Winkler.